and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. We were supposed to be all in this together, but predictably, some of us are more in it than others. You're more likely to die of coronavirus if you're poorer, and you're more likely to have spent lockdown working from the garden, while your kids get dedicated Zoom lessons if you're richer. Joining me today is expert on inequality Danny Dawling, social geographer, Oxford University professor, author of Inequality in the 1% and a dozen other books. Welcome to the bunker, Danny. Thanks ever so much for having me. This spring, you published a book called Slowdown, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy and Our Lives. And at first blush, this, this turns out to be remarkably prescient, doesn't it? Um, but, your, but your argument is that the slowdown had already begun. Uh, can you tell yes. us more about that? I can. I can absolutely promise you the very last editorial changes were made on January the 6th before we knew what was about to happen. Uh, So this is a book all about what things were slowing down uh, before the enormous slowdown of of the pandemic. And it's because I I spent several years looking at trends in things that we measure, uh, hoping to write a book about what was going faster and what wasn't. And what's quite remarkable is I kept on finding that things that people think are speeding up may still be rising. So the population of the planet is still going up, GDP is still going up. But none of these things are rising as fast as they have been in previous decades. Uh, I could only find uh, four things, actually, that that were rising. Our consumption and pollution of goods were still rising and accelerating. The number of flights that we were taking on aeroplanes was still accelerating. Uh, The temperature of the planet wasn't just rising, it's accelerating, or it was. And finally, the number of uh, international graduate students was accelerating and rising um, so it's quite ironic the the, four, the only four things I could find that were actually accelerating uh, have stopped accelerating but most importantly we were living under a misconception that we were in an age of acceleration compared to our parents and our grandparents our times have been slower and there were all the kind of indications that there is a general slowdown on the way. But that's extraordinary isn't it I mean it feels really counterintuitive to say that because the internet came along essentially in the early in the early 70s or so and then 20 years uh, later it began to transform our lives how is it that we can have something which obviously speeds up human interactions and yet we're slowing down we're kind of programmed through what's happened to the last, last six generations six or seven generations of us to always see things through a prism of speeding up And I think that's because things really did speed up incredibly for previous generations. Um, Depends how old you are, but for me, I had grandparents who were born at a time when there were no tractors in the field. It was (laughs) horse-drawn labour in the fields. They watched air flight begin. Uh, They watched an airline industry become established. They watched people landing on the moon. Uh, They went from telephones to, to radio to television and then the internet all in their lifetimes. And if you compare that kind of change to what's happened in our lives, it is not as impressive. But we're left with this kind of legacy of looking for acceleration and always talking about it. So uh, the Premier of Canada, I think, in in Davos recently, a couple of years ago, uh, said the speed of change has never been faster, but it will never feel as slow again as we are now. And and these kind of comments, they, they, they sound plausible until you actually get some data and try to measure the speed of changes. Uh, And then you don't actually find that pattern that people think of. Uh, And 
there have been books written on acceleration, and in recent years, they have a lot of long words and a lot of theory in them. Remarkably few examples. And my my favourite example in one book, uh, after several pages, they, they thought they better put in a, an example of speeding up. And the data they'd got was the speed at which members of the houses of the parliament in Norway speak. And politicians in Norway now speak faster than they used to. Now, if that's your first piece of empirical data about everything speeding up, you can tell that some poor researcher was clutching at straws trying to find something. So it sounds counterintuitive. We're told we're speeding up. Universities are endlessly producing press releases about the amazing discoveries that they're making. But it's the measuring of it uh, suggests very, very different. And probably most important of all of this is the slowdown in the number of human beings. Uh, I was born in 1968. 1968 was the year of the fastest growth in the human species ever, about 2% increase in our numbers on the planet. And after that, that growth rate began to fall steadily again and again and again. Uh, recently, I think just last week, The Lancet uh, published a paper saying we may actually only make it to eight or eight and a half or nine uh, billion people on the planet. We may not get to what the UN think, which is 10 or 11 but most importantly, we're heading for the first stabilisation of the population of the planet ever um, within the lifetimes of our children. <laughs> you know, and that's an enormous slowdown. That's the biggest slowdown of all. Uh, and it's quite incredible that we're heading for that. We were already in a global economic crisis before the pandemic began. GDP growth each decade is slower than the decade before, all the way from the 50s onwards. But we we always ascribe a slowdown to particular events. So we talk about the 1970s crisis or the recession in the 80s as if individual things were what mattered most. We don't step back and say, actually, the overall pace of change, although still going forward, is not going forward as fast. So maybe it's not about the speed of change. It's about the number of human interactions that we have, isn't it, when you come to think about it? And that's what the internet has enabled. Oh, this well, the, the internet is our latest change, so we kind of we, we hold on to it as an amazing thing. Uh, it depends how geeky you are. I, I was lucky. I went to University of Newcastle upon Tyne in 1986 as an undergraduate, and Newcastle was one of the few uh, universities in Britain. There were only half a dozen that were on the proto internet in the late 80s. So I had email um, as a late teenager, and that's a long time ago. I'm 52 years old now. I had a Windows computer by about 1990. That's 30 years ago. Now, of course, more and more people become connected. But actually, the speed of people being connected to the internet, of course, has been slowing for a long time because the big increases were in the past. The acceleration in access to mobile phones has slowed down because there are now so many mobile phones on the planet. People still talk about the $100 computer when we can actually get to a computer cheap enough that the vast majority of the world's children will, will have one. But that is within... That is within sight. And we're not seeing new technologies around the corner. Uh, we're, we're not seeing a technology which allows us to teleport around the world, the kind of things that we were promised in, in the past. Uh, we're not really looking, although some entrepreneurs are, but in general we've come to realise that we're not going to go out to space and colonise other planets. It isn't possible. They're too far away. It takes too long. We clutch at what we've got now and still call it acceleration rather than accept that it isn't quite what was expected and it wasn't as fast as what's happened uh, before. 
And your contention is that this slowdown is a good thing. And that's, again, counter to a lot of assumptions we make about the importance of GDP, for example. Why, why is a slowdown a good thing? I don't think that is too hard to show. The, if, for instance, GDP growth had carried on at the rate it was in the 1950s or 60s uh, for the decades afterwards, we'd already be at two, three or possibly you know, degrees warmer on the planet. Because you know, GDP growth, the way we measure it, is, is all about um, producing more things. And so we, we would have burnt ourselves up. If our population growth hadn't slowed down, we'd be talking about 15 billion or 20 billion of us. Acceleration was partly lauded so highly in the past because we were improving material living standards. We were getting to a point where we could heat our homes well enough, uh, where we could actually get enough clothing so that you didn't have to worry about uh, staying warm in that way, Uh, building enough buildings so that people had enough space. But in the rich countries of the world, we've gone way past achieving that so the idea that you're going to be happier if the economy accelerates again so that you can buy even more uh, doesn't make sense the environmental case is the strongest on average in the uk we now consume and throw away six times more in weight every week than our parents did in the families that we grew up in Um, and that's six times you can see it in the amount of rubbish you put in the bins compared to the bin that you would have had as as a child you know, if that was to continue accelerating, you can imagine just how many bins you'd have had to have outside your house. Um, you know, it's, it's slow down. We've had slow down for quite a long time, uh, more so in some countries than others. Japan is the most uh, famous example of, of a, a nation slowing down, but also much of Europe, uh, and particularly in the parts of Europe uh, which are doing better socially. So Scandinavia, Nordic countries. Uh, there, the slowdown in population growth has gone on uh, for longer. But these are not societies where things are falling apart. In fact, the opposite. They're societies with some of the best health services in the world, the best education systems. Whereas a country like the UK, or even more the USA, which sees growth as incredibly important, has the most widespread inequality and poverty and some of the worst education systems, worst health systems, and so on. Uh, you can look at the pandemic, interestingly, in, in, through this particular lens, on average, and not always, those states which have dealt with the pandemic better have been the ones which were already slowing down, at least demographically, uh, beforehand. A lot of people are trying to measure well-being now and quantify it in various ways. And so is this the way you'd measure it in terms of health systems, education systems, how good they are? Um, there are so many people doing it, I'd leave it, leave it to them. There's, yeah. there's, an, there's a whole continuum of well-being uh, from... The work done on severe mental ill health, anxiety and depression mainly, uh, where we have international comparisons and they show that the USA, amongst which countries, has by far the worst mental health. UK is pretty bad. More equal countries are doing better. But there are also these happiness indices. Fairly famous Finland in the last three years has scored first in the world on the happiness index. And you get an immediate reaction from people in Britain that go, Oh, they can't really be happy. You know, it's a bit cold there. Um, but, but you know, there are different kinds of happiness and well-being and contentment. They're measured in many, many ways. What's quite nice in terms of social science is they do tend to produce a very similar geographical pattern, which gives us a clue to which places are going in, in the right direction and which are not. Uh, the last thing I'll say about happiness, I, I am interested in it, but it's big. Uh, individual variation between human beings is enormous. 
So you and I have a propensity to be happy, part of which may be innate, which might actually be our genes. And when you're thinking about happiness, you've got to take out the fact that you as an individual, um, your levels of happiness will be very much about you. And you've got to try and think of the society wider. And it's quite hard to do that. Uh, Some people are just born to be happy, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Are you one of them, Danny? Um, sometimes I'm, I'm optimistic, I think, uh, but no, I've got friends who are quite obviously cheerier, uh, than I am. And of course we all know people who, who find life very difficult and, you know, the glass is always half empty. This is fascinating, um, because, you know, when you, when you look at a, a country like ours now, heading towards an enormous economic depression and so on, we have enough housing, we have enough shelter, we've learnt that even in the worst of circumstances, we can do our supply chain and feed ourselves and so on. We're worried about precarity and uncertainty usually, but our biggest problem, and this was from before the pandemic, and the pandemic makes it worse, our biggest problem was mental ill health, particularly amongst the young. And the, the old would tend to poo-poo this, they'd, they'd look at the figures and say, oh, that can't be true. Prince Charles's Trust, the Prince's Trust, did a survey every year uh, for the last 10 years. And every year it showed mental ill Ill health of young people deteriorating, uh, which is why well-being matters. If you compare 15-year-olds across countries, which I've done, and again, it gets repetitive, you find the mental ill health of ill people, young people, is worse in the most unequal countries. And I think the reason is rather obvious. Young people are worried about the future. If you're growing up in a very unequal country where there are a few winners and many losers, it is rational, even if it's subconscious, to realise actually, odds on, things aren't going to go very well for you because most people cannot end up in the top 10%. I'm afraid in the UK, if you're not in the top 10% by income, life is going to be a struggle. Um, At the moment, the latest estimates I've seen from Standard Life Foundation and so on are half the population is heading to be financially insecure and on the edge of being in effect destitute at the moment and in a really rich country uh, that is a choice and in more equitable countries in Europe with the same pandemic exactly the same virus you don't see that same level of fear and economic insecurity. That's an absolutely shocking figure isn't it and I hadn't heard it before but I want to talk to you in particular about children um, because as you say it's we experience happiness very, very differently. And I think one of the things about this pandemic that's really surprised me is how some people have been quite open to me, some friends, that they've really quite enjoyed it. And they particularly enjoyed the earliest phase of lockdown, which I found absolutely hideous. But they yeah. uh, they, they loved it. Uh, they just sort of cocooned. But it has not been, uh, I, I think for older people, in many cases, it's been a lot easier than it has for younger ones. And I wanted to talk to you in particular about this because you used to work in children's summer play schemes, mm. um, something that you you say you you try not to forget in all the rest of your work and there are almost no summer play schemes at the moment because of the lockdown what impact is it going to have to have taken so many children out of education for six yeah. months oh it's a, it's a really i mean sorry i sound a bit callous this but as a social scientist it's a really interesting natural experiment you know we'll actually be able to to find it probably the lack of schooling will probably be less harmful than we think that is that is just a guess i have because we we tend to put schooling and traditional education up on our pe- up on our pedestal uh, but our schools in in the uk were not particularly good compared to schools in europe and that's all of them I, i'm including the elite supposed privileged schools there as well when you actually look at what 
what we produce compared to children in other European countries. Uh, ONS do a survey, I think almost weekly during COVID, about how the population are coping. And you're right, and it's in the survey, uh, for people under 70, a substantial number have found that life has been better with the pandemic because they hated the commute and they hated going into their office job. And that's quite a shock to see. Uh, But the survey doesn't look at what's happened to children and how children are being constrained. We used to have, and I was a play worker in the 80s, we used to have in cities around the country play schemes in public parks for the whole six weeks of the summer. Uh, essentially, they you have a lockup, uh, you have a key. Inside that lockup are some footballs, um, some helicopter nets, which you can string between trees to play with. If you're lucky, an inflatable uh, bouncy castle, all those kind of things. And every morning you go to the park, you set it all up, Hundreds of children arrive, you can't control the numbers, and it's relatively safe, and it's something uh, to do. And it's the parents that really enjoyed this, because they had an idea that you know, at least there was an adult or several adults uh, there. Uh, the big changes, of course, you know, children now communicate by computer and can play by computer with each other, so they've been doing a lot of that. Um, but they really do need to get out and get exercise. Um, and it's very sad. The tragedy of this is we have well, at the moment, tens of thousands, it will be hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of people of the age I was when I was running play schemes who have no work. Uh, I was paid £3 an hour. I can remember this in the 80s. Uh, you don't have to pay young people very, very much. It's a fun job to do. and But there is no, you know, government doesn't even have the imagination to begin to think of, let's, let's set this up to give people some relief o- over the school holidays. Over the effects, the, the only way you can really measure it is is to compare young adults in a place like Finland where they do have these schemes which include food by the way to make sure you can still get a free lunch although we have that thanks to the footballer um, which is the way we set but the way we set policy in Britain is is if a footballer is is tenacious enough uh, you may feed the children over summer but if you sorry to get back to the point we, we can look at countries which still have play schemes which still care enough about everybody in their society and we can look at how well their young adults do and how well people do in mid-age and how their mental health compares to the mental health of people in Britain, how their productivity is much higher, um, how they're able on average to speak six, seven or eight languages for an average young person in a country like Finland, and how they can then elect politicians who do things like get rid of homelessness entirely. And I'm not saying all these things are causal, it's just so much of a tangle, but it, the Finns will tell you in other countries which... Uh, still encourage play I'll tell you that part of the reason their society works is is because of what they do in the early years Uh, whereas we we have this stupid obsession with oh we must get people the highest GCSEs they can possibly get so we measure all the interventions you know really important to intervene at age three to try to get somebody to get an A star at a GCSE uh, which getting an A star at a GCSE is knowing exactly the right words to put in the six-point question that the examiner has been told that they're allowed to give the highest number of marks for. It's training people to jump through hoops. It's not imaginative. Uh, so we've got a long way to go in Britain. Um, but the nice thing is, the great advantage is that we have the rest of a continent to look at, if only we would look and learn, where they are already doing things better than us but we find it impossible to imagine other people can do things better than us you've written a a lot about brexit and geography 
You, you described Essex in your work as the capital of Brexit. Tell us, tell us what, about that and how it works. Okay. Um, <laughs> this was going back, going back way back to that referendum on the 23rd of June 2016, where people could either vote to leave, vote to remain, or choose not to vote if they were allowed to vote. A lot of people were disenfranchised and didn't have a vote. And I spent a lot of time, actually a couple of months, uh, looking at that data. And the most important thing for me is that the south of England has a minority of the electorate. Um, And you can define the south in several different ways. It all has a minority, just under 50% of the electorate who could get to vote. But a majority of people who voted leave lived in the south of England and it was almost all of the south of England so places like Essex very high but also Hampshire also also Cornwall also Somerset Um, a few odd places like Oxfordshire just only just being majority remain and London but there were millions of leave voters uh, in London so it's the south it's the conservative shires it's where the old live and of course the south of England has a much older population than the rest of the UK uh, that voted to leave. You know, it, it's the people who voted for the MPs in the, in the European Research Group who also voted to leave. In the North, there was a much higher rate of abstention. Now, because people normally ignore abstentions, they then look at who voted, particularly in very poor parts of the North, which have the highest rate of abstentions. And because the leave vote was higher in some of those places, they decided to, to say it's all about Sunderland or somewhere. Whereas... Just stepping back and looking about the, the figures, it was a Southern English old uh, male, Tory and UKIP vote to leave in the main. So does that mean that all we hear about the so-called Red Wall of newly Tory constituencies who allegedly voted um, for Boris Johnson in 2019 in order to get Brexit done, does, <laughs> yeah. does that mean that, that this is all rubbish and they don't really want Brexit as much as, as Johnson assumes? Uh, I, I don't think Johnson even thinks about them. I think he just he just repeats what one of his advisors tells him to say about them. I think he has his mind on other things. It's, I don't know how often he's ever been to any of these places. Um, the Okay, when you look at the December 2019 vote, the most important thing that happened was that 2 million people who'd voted Labour in 2017, for Jeremy Corbyn as well, he was a leader in 2017, 2 million Labour voters didn't vote. They abstained. That's the key thing about the last election. Hardly anybody switches between Labour and Conservative or Conservative to Labour. That doesn't happen. It, you, you abstain in one election, you might vote for another party, and then election down the line later you may, but it was abstentions. What happened in the Red Wall is that Labour voters, in slightly disproportionate numbers, were more likely not to vote. They'd been persuaded not to vote, but in various ways. Um that they get information. They've been persuaded that the person that they had voted for in 2017, and it was very, very personalised about the leader, uh, he was dangerous, he consorted with terrorists, he was, you know, the most bigoted man ever, and it, it was terrible to do. The other important thing to say about the Red Wall seats, the, one that, the ones that switched, uh, they often have names like Rother Valley or Great Grimsby that we associate with poverty because we stereotype by, by names. But when you looked in all the Red Wall seats, I could always find four or five large neighbourhoods which were in the most affluent 20% of the country. It wasn't uh, your poorer parts of inner cities in the north, they all stayed Labour. It was areas to which people had retired, where they'd retired up 
into North Lincolnshire, often from having had a lifetime spent, say, down in London. So, so this, these are older areas um, and not the poorest, often uh, suburban. And we really, the capacity for us to, as to get things wrong, because the story is particularly useful for a particular uh, politician, is very high. It isn't always Machiavellian. Uh, the Sunderland story was simply the shock of the exit poll in the referendum in 2016. The fact that Sunderland always declares first in elections because they have school kids running with the ballot boxes. And a camera zoomed in on a blonde lady and two old men who were bald at the point when I think it was David Dimbleby had to come up with something to say and the script wasn't written because the assumption on the night of, of Brexit was that it would be a narrow remain victory. Um, so I think this this story about, and it was a horrible kind of, the implication was um, the bigoted, stupid Northerners have gone and shot themselves in the foot. Um, that that story was formed on that night, um, almost by accident. But also, it has to be said, if you think about who produces BBC programmes in W1A, they invariably come from the south of England, and they have parents who are retired, who live in quite nice housing, in places like Hampshire and Sussex and so on, who very likely would have voted leave. So they knew who voted leave. It was their parents. But much easier to blame it on the people of Stoke or Middlesbrough uh, than to actually say it's mum and dad. So the logical outcome of what you're saying, basically, is that the UK is going to break up. Because I, I don't see, you know, it, it's... In whatever way, it's not sustainable for an overwhelmingly Tory England to carry on dragging the rest of the United Kingdom with it. Is that yes. what you expect to happen? Um, well, the overall Toryness is is incredibly age related. It's now all about age. Age has become by far the biggest uh, determinant. For the last election, I divided the country up into 66 groups of a million people because um, we have 66 million people. The youngest, of course, were children and couldn't vote. Each group had a million in it. And I had to get to age 43 before I could even get my first million Tory voters. So below age 43, you're not, there really aren't, hardly anybody votes Tory under 43. So it's a really big age thing. The idea that England will stay this way forever I think is un- unlikely. However, even though I do, you know, I don't think we've got a conservative future f- forever, particularly as house prices fall, which is the main reason people carry on voting conservatives because they look after their house prices. But the breakup of the UK would fit the general breakup of the British Empire. We, we forget and we forget, we were never taught at school, that Britain was an empire. Parts of Britain happened to be in the Caribbean. You could travel around Britain to other bits of Britain if you were British. We then instituted immigration rules to stop that. But the empire broke up. We lost colonies in the 60s and the 70s. We lost Hong Kong in 1997. Scotland and England only came together in an act of union because it suited them at the beginnings of forming that empire. So I suspect that the breakup is inevitable, but not because of the inevitability of a conservative England. Uh, I think in a conservative England is, is partly created and dominated now because of a set of older people who've been taught that the country they grew up in was naturally superior. If you look at the school textbooks uh, in the 40s and 50s and 60s, people were told they invented everything, everything in the world, every spinning jenny, every steam engine, uh, civilised the world, gave people railway lines and tracks and so on, for which people weren't grateful. 
won two world wars and one world cup and you know if if that is what you're told from the very uh, start of life then watching things get worse watching your children and grandchildren being unable to house themselves unable to get a mortgage even watching health services becoming overwhelmed and so on it is very very upsetting and if you're told that the reason reason for, for all these things going wrong oh it's those europeans coming over here you know, um, and people were convinced by that. They they were convinced, particularly older people, that the reason was that Britain, left to itself, could rise again and be great again. Now that argument weakens and weakens by the day. The Conservatives can keep on trying to say it. Uh, I think Boris Johnson honestly believes it's true. He believes in the top cornflakes. He thinks he is genetically superior. Uh, that the British are born to be you know, Empire 2.0 and so on, they just mustn't be held back by an overarching state that intervenes too much or bureaucrats in Brussels, but we have it pluckily in us to be great again. I think he honestly believes that. And I've seen some of the textbooks that were used in his prep school. You know, he was, the word uh, piccaninnies, I think, and watermelon smiles uh, was in one of them. He didn't make these things up. He was taught it. And the group of people he went to university with and so on, they believed the same thing the same natural superiority ideas that are that some people are just much better than others and they are some of the best um you know and and to an extent it's a message that um some voters liked um you tug your forelock and you let your betters who know better look after you don't worry your silly selves about government spending the government can announce we're going to spend three billion on this it sounds like a lot um particularly in a country where we don't teach numeracy very much. But, but, so I'm being a bit cynical. Um, but the young, as soon as you go under age 43, the young who have been given these massive student loans for the half the population who go to university, the young who've had their freedom to work and travel taken away, the young who know that we're burning up the planet and completely understand that, you know, I don't think the young are really going to forgive this, that particular political party in, in the rest of the lives of most of them. And we're seeing that changing now, aren't we? I mean, we're seeing that in Black Lives Matter. We're seeing that in all the things that are changing in public discourse, that that that, that mood is changing. And is that going to be the catalyst for a new identity for Britain yes. that isn't upset by empire, do you think? Oh, yes. And the right will try and paint this as oh, posh university graduates. You know, Labour have gone posh, uh, which is dead easy to do because half of young people and more women – 55% of young women go to university, whereas in the past, hardly anybody did. When I went to university, it was less than 6%. So old people did not go to university. Young people did. It's not that this is a cosmopolitan labour thing. It's, it's that change. The, the, my favourite example of a, of a case that they couldn't paint this on was we had two marches in the city of Oxford recently about the road statue. And these were the biggest marches that the city of Oxford, I think, has ever had in it. Now, because we're under lockdown, there are no students in the city and there are no tourists. So the people marching were locals. And at the front of the march were hundreds of, of, hundreds of black local citizens of, of Oxford who do the cleaning for the colleges, who do the cooking, who work in the car factory. And by the second time that these hundreds of people had, had gathered outside the, the statue of Cecil Rhodes on the high street, that's when the college said it was minded, I've done it yet, minded to take the statue down. And nobody could point to those crowds and accuse them of being some kind of liberal elite. 
because the liberal elite had actually left the city. <laughs> They'd gone. <laughs> they they been sent home. So no, I, th- I think we have had a t- we were at a turning point. We will get enormous amount of kind of slander and lies trying to demean it. But I I don't know a social science lecturer who is not anti-colonial. I, I don't know. And we're seeing all across the country, including in my university, hundreds of students demanding that the curriculum be revised so that they're given reading lists where all the authors are not white men. And that's happening everywhere. And when, when that's happening in some of the most traditional, least radical parts of the education system, which is what I see, I'm, I'm, thinking, I'm thinking that's it. Come this October, when we are teaching millions of students online through Zoom, the least we can do is not actually teach them rubbish about the brilliance of the British Empire. And they don't want that either. And they're still having to pay £9,250 for the privilege of watching a lecture on the screen. They can at least be told the truth. Danny, that's just a great note to end on, I think. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining us. (laughs) Thanks ever so much. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. It'll be our 100th Bunker podcast. And if you want to help us celebrate, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode ad three and the night before general release if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker podcast to find out the details. We'll see you tomorrow. Don't forget to bring presents. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.